Welcome to Neo Academia, where you'll hear real conversations with trailblazing thinkers outside the ivory tower. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and today I'm joined by Adam Mastriani. Adam is a postdoc at Columbia Business School, but most people know him from his blog, Experimental History. He's an incredible writer, a comedian, and a psychologist who just happens to also be a Rhodes Scholar. I'm actually really excited to kick off season two with Adam as my first guest, because up until this episode, I wasn't sure exactly what I was doing with Neo Academia. But in talking with Adam, it occurred to me that this show is really about changing the vibe of scholarly discourse. I want you to be a part of scholars having fun conversations outside of their expertise, unplugged, informal, thinking in real time, maybe even making mistakes and saying things that are wrong, and hopefully sharing a few laughs. If I even get a giggle out of you, I hope you'll consider liking this video, maybe giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Gosh, I don't know, maybe you could subscribe. And if you actually learn something while enjoying yourself, might I suggest upgrading to a premium Substack subscription where you'll get access to all my audio recordings, bonus clips, maybe even recordings of my live TikTok philosophy readings. For real though, Neo Academia is possible because of you, and I'm committed to finding ways to make scholarly ideas juicy and digestible and by supporting me and this podcast you're helping me cook up the sauce season two of neo academia is also possible thanks to big nerve the idea tournament game for innovative thinkers I've been working with Big Nerve to help develop a community of creative people who enjoy playing with ideas and getting better at combining rational argument with creative imagination. Their goal is simple. They want to recognize and fund brilliant idea people like us and create a new profession called innovators. They do this by providing a platform for catalysts like me to ask engaging questions that creative innovators like you can answer. The answers to these questions are then rated for their creativity and points are awarded for each aspect of the game. At the end of the month, the idea tournaments pay out to the top 33% of participants and scouts who are building their team of innovative thinkers. Cha-ching, cha-ching. Yeah, I don't know why I said that. The founders of Big Nerve have worked hard on creating a game that will elevate innovative thinkers and their ideas. Now to join my team, you'll have to click on the Big Nerve question in the Theory Gang newsletter, where each episode I'll design a special question relevant to the guest and discussion. All right, let's get into this episode. Now, listen to the very end so you can hear the big nerve question, and maybe you'll hear some clues as to how I'm thinking about my answer to the question. Thanks for coming on. I am, um, of course. I I feel like I know you, and it's weird. And I think with you especially, I feel like I know you because like I write the same way, but like with ten times more curse words. So, <laughs> well, I. I sometimes use those too, but I know my parents and my and other family members read what I write. And not that they haven't heard naughty words before, but you know, and what if what if a child gets a computer and then finds my content somehow and I'm the one who teaches them how to swear? I just don't want that kind of responsibility in my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would argue that corrupting the youth is probably one of the most important things we could be doing though. <laughs> it's true. Although I like to I like to cor- corrupt them later on. Let them have a nice childhood and, you know, build up some assumptions about the world. There's no point in corrupting someone who hasn't been innocent for a little while. True. Um, yeah. Well, I don't think they should be reading your Substack, anyways. It's like, I mean, it's funny, but it could also be very scary to read. What's the, what's the scary part? Oh, well, I mean, like all the shit about like science is kind of fucked and like, you know, psychology, oh, sure. like not real, like, but. Apart from that, it's mostly funny, I would say. Like, I can't believe you're like, you're kind of a stand-up comedian too, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I do improv. I've done stand-up. I, I don't do stand-up too much. I only did stand-up when I lived in the UK because over there I felt like I had some role to play. Whereas here, it's like you go to any stand-up night and you're going to see a guy who looks like me. He's like wearing these glasses and he's going to do the shtick that I could do. So it's like, why? We don't need another one of me. Whereas in improv, I do feel like I'm actually a little bit of a different improviser, even though most of the people doing it, you're, you're going to be plenty of people who look like me, but they won't say the same things that I would say. Yeah. So main, mainly an improviser. Yeah, I was going to say this. You have this vibe about you that's like this, like, you, you've ever seen those movies, like I'm thinking like Zombieland or something like that, where there's a character and he's doing the voiceover and you, he's funny. He's like your nerdy, funny friend who like you want to <laughs> hang out with and stuff. But like you have this vibe about you for sure. That's your vibe. You're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> well, it all began the second day of junior year. <laughs> Um, but it's like you're also a Rhodes Scholar, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, well, uh, yeah, it's it's just a bit of shtick I do. It's the, it's the the niche. I feel. We're all looking for our niche that we can fill, and you're just trying to find that that bit of snow that's untrammeled, and then just make a big snow angel in it for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I guess this is mine. I didn't choose it; it chose me. I don't know what what's yours. I think I'm like in the yellow snow, to be honest. Like, um. E. I I do make big snow angels, but like I feel like maybe it's the swearing. It just I think it rubs mm-hmm. people the wrong way. It, either they really like the way it rubs them, or they're like, yeah, ooh, God, that's awkward. Like way more awkward than your shtick. Like because mine's not really a shtick. It's like this is me. <laughs> it was scary. Like authenticity is terrifying. Uh-huh. Yeah. So oh yeah, this this is me too. It's just shtick all the way down. You get past the shtick, and there's just nothing there. <laughs> why is it not scary then like maybe because it seems like a shtick like you're so like you're a consummate professional at this like mm. it seems like you're the shit just rolls off the cuff for you yeah uh I, I guess it's also doing improv for a long time and hanging out with improvisers for a long time but part of it i think is like like less inhibition because of doing that in, but in a certain way that, that like i don't know you embarrass yourself, yourself enough on stage and you kind of realize like oh, it's only embarrassing if I let it be. And if I signal to the audience that I'm not embarrassed by this, then I guess it's not embarrassing. Like they can feel vicariously embarrassed, but that's on them. Um, so I guess I guess it's that. And like, this is something that, that you'll find with people who like are not very experienced at improv. Like they, they like, they will like literally or sometimes just like metaphorically like be cringing at themselves on stage. And like, it's hard to watch because you know that they don't think things are going very well. But if they just cared less about that, like, I mean, they can't turn like a bad scene into a great scene, but but it can turn like a painful scene into maybe an OK scene if people actually accept what's going on rather than like clearly signal to you that they think that it's bad. But I don't think there's any shortcut in doing that. You just have to do it long enough that like it doesn't make you feel that way anymore. Yeah. At least that's, that's what happened to me. Just like full. Cringe. Yeah. It's like, all right. I think I think I'm on my way. Like I've started t- like posting a lot of TikToks and. Okay. My daughter's like, these are terrible. And I'm like, good. <laughs> That's this good. Okay. She's 11. Uh-huh. So it's like, you know, if, if she thinks they're, she's lying anyways, cause they're really fucking good. Um, I'm like, <laughs> bullshit. You know, my TikToks are good. So maybe I'm like not accepting that I'm cringe. The true cringe is cringing at being cringe. But there's like a good cringe where it's like, that's what you meant to do. Mm-hmm. I'm almost there. <laughs> yeah. Like I've not even introduced you or anything, but that's just how I do it. To be honest, I really just 
want to be friends with the people I bring on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and this is sort of like a big conceit to like get someone in the same room. Like, oh, I didn't know you'd be here. Yeah. Well, since we are. So you know, weird to, yeah, so weird to yeah. talk to you here. Right. But, you know, you, you just started being like a full-time, what I'm just going to call neo-academic because own your cringe, right? Like that's what the sure. fuck I think this is. There, mm -hmm. There's people like me and you who are academic-ish. Yeah. I mean, in, in psychology, I mean, you don't need that much money and you don't need like a lab or Petri dishes or like a large Hadron Collider or whatever. Uh, so like I lose less by not being housed in a university. Although like I'm still open to the idea that there could be a place out there where I could show up and be like, this is what I like to do. And this is what I value. And there could be there who are like, we value that too. Like, let's give it a shot. And I think that'd be cool. Like I, di I didn't set out to go into the woods because I'm like, I hate people and I don't want to be around them. I'd love to be around people. And like, I'd love someone to solve the problem of like, can we have a building and like, can we have health insurance and like, can we have a way for students to be here? All that would be great. I, I think ultimately I might have to build that from scratch if that's what I want. But if there's a place out there that's, that's like trying, that would be willing to be that kind of place, I'd be willing to go there. I just haven't found that place yet. So yeah, maybe I'll have to make, make my own. Are you like, are you like in a postdoc phase or what are you like, you've taught at sort Columbia of, too? Yeah, I'm, I'm in between. So I had this postdoc at Columbia that is wrapping up in the next couple of months. So I, I just finished teaching my last classes there. So it's like half teaching, half research. I'm going to go to Kellogg at, or Northwestern um, to a postdoc there. That's all research. That basically, there's a faculty member there who reads my blog. And so when he posted a postdoc, and like this was back in January before I had turned on paid subscriptions, had no idea how it was going to go. I could like, I was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to have, you know, a paycheck and health insurance come July. So I was like looking for opportunities. I emailed this guy and I was like, Hey, you know, I'm weird. Would you still be interested in working with me? And basically had some good conversations and he was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. And so we're going to do some work together and see what comes of it. But I like going in knowing that like, he knows who I am and I don't have to pretend anymore. Uh, and that is, I think, what I was really looking for. And just maybe eventually, like, that just runs out. But, like, there's nobody else. Like, everybody else wants me to pretend. I'm, I want to write a piece about this that's called basically, like, what if you just did the things you think are right and accepted the consequences? And and really, every blog post is mainly aimed at myself. That Like, I want to ask myself this question. Like, why don't I just do the things I think are right and accept the consequences for doing them? I like it. No, I think that's how I live. I think also with what you're doing in psychology, you can be a little weird, a little silly little guy and and like do the, <laughs> and do the thing. With what I'm doing, I don't know why, but like biomedical scientists take themselves so fucking seriously. Yeah. They're like, no, we solve all the little tiny fucking puzzles and have no yeah. interesting philosophy. It's like it's over professionalized. And I, it was choking me. So I was like, I'm out. But but cool. Like, I'm so glad you're going to be still attached to an institution because institutions are good. I mean, they can be like they, they certainly solve a lot of problems. They optimize for solving some kinds of problems and they cause a bunch of other problems along the way. And I mean, in the meantime, like I'm going to be doing experimental history. And my hope is that within a year or two, that can be all that I do all the time. Uh, I mean, it is now what I spend 90 percent of my time doing. But yeah, like I, I have this dream of, you know, what if there was a place where you didn't have to pretend? And I'd love to basically buy a house. Um, I don't live in the house. Students would live in the house like you would in grad school. Uh, I mean, I live in a different house. Uh, I have a home, um, but the home isn't part of this 
plan. I mean, it's a separate thing that I would do in my own time um, is have a house. And uh, students would live together in the house and it would basically be like a lab. And and I would train those students to do research the way I think is best. And we can answer questions that are psychological in nature or not. Like my experience is, is more limited outside of psychology. But even now, I feel like the barriers between what I what I do are much fuzzier than they were when I was in graduate school. And like, that's what we do. Like we post our science on the internet and that's the way we do it. And like, if that went well, you could get another house and like someone else leave the second house and like they do physics over there mainly. And like we do psychology in this house and then that went well, you get another house and like over there they do whatever uh, they do with theoretical biology. I don't know. And if you get into these houses, like basically you have a university, but you, but people are doing a very different thing. And I think this is the way much more like how things used to be. I mean, not exactly the like people were living in the same houses, but this wasn't a professionalization process. You didn't show up at a place and was like, yeah, teach me the norms and teach me what to wear and teach me how to be part of a community in this way. It was more like you show up and we, you know, we'd start like poking things. And that's what we do. Uh, that would be my dream to, to build a place like that. I like that dream. I I might live there if I didn't have like a kid and a kind of a, a little farm homestead situation. Yeah. So I don't think that would work for me. But that's like you're saying then like you would get your own house. And yes, would your fiance want to live in this house with your students or? <laughs> no, we, we don't live in the house. I no, really no. can't make okay. that clear enough. We live in a different house. We have a home. I think basically because like so I imagine this would be targeted at the kind of people who would have who gone to graduate school. So I talk to people all the time. Who are like, I am thinking about going to graduate school, but I feel conflicted or I'm in graduate school and I feel conflicted. Like I want to do research, but I don't like big swaths of academia or I don't like what I'm going to have to trade off in order to do this. Like, what do I do? And right now I don't have a good answer for them. Like, I don't know. I mean, the best answer I have is like treat if you really want to do this, if you really want to discover truth about the world, treat it like you would treat like doing music or art or whatever like find a way to pay yourself and like take care of that and then do it and do it because you love it and like put it on the internet so other people can find it. And I wish there was like a, you know, semi-pro or amateur class of people who are doing that. Like it, they do exist, but it's not the same kind of scene as there is for like people who are doing music online. That's my best answer right now. I'd love for the answer to be like, well, there is like a, a place that will support you while you do this, that like you can live in the house. And like, if we can get an endowment, like we can pay you too. So you don't, have, you can like get food while you're in the house. And to be clear, <laughs> I don't live in the house. It's important that I live in a different house because, because yeah. young people should be unsupervised with each other. And that's how they come up with good ideas and have fun. Um, mm -hmm. They should have time away from adults. Um, mm -hmm. That's why I live in a different house. <laughs> I love this. It's like a halfway house for intellectuals. It's like, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's kind of like an institute for advanced study, except instead of that being a place where you go in your twilight years after you've like earned the right to be there, it's a, it's a place that actually does the thing that that institute tries to do, which is create a place where there's like innovation and people thinking about new ideas and doing that requires like taking a risk and accepting weirdness and knowing that like it all might go nowhere. But most of the stuff goes nowhere already with less risk. So why not? Why not at least have the possibility of doing something cool? Yeah. No, I like this. It's um to me, you know, I've talked with people in the past on this podcast about the infrastructure of like what it would take to to do something different with academia. But what you're talking about is, I think, more cultural. Like, yeah, we're talking about the house, but it's kind of like a metaphor in a sense. Yeah. Like it's about yeah. creating a culture of scrappy 
questioning outside of the norm. That's kind of what's most important about this is that we deprofessionalize this stuff, which means like, you know, take people out of their professional outfits and shit and get them out of committee meetings and get them out of, you know, <laughs> like whatever the didactic portion of grad school, I think, is because that's going to be almost useless. Yeah, I've talked about this with so many people. It's it's definitely a cultural shift. But I, the good news is I think a cultural shift is easier to implement than trying to figure out what's good. You know what I mean? Because like, yeah. what, like the question I've been asking lately is, is that a good idea? So like mm. your idea of the house, what are the base, what's the basis from which we're trying to like create this, you know, science house? Yeah. What you're trying to instill, obviously you can test and kind of see if you get that output, but it would definitely make, I think for a more creative atmosphere than, yeah. and, and also an atmosphere where you're not afraid to fail. That's what we're missing. Yeah. And part of the idea like behind Science House is like the ecosystem should be more diverse. Everybody loves to complain about academia, but I think there are some people who, who like really that is their home and that's where they survive and thrive because they're optimized for it. Like I have no interest in trying to pry those people out of it or change them because I think you know, they're in the place where like their values and skills meets the affordances of the institution. But there are people for whom that's not the case. Some of them are trying to be in academia right now. Some of them are doing a million other things. But if you carve out this less professionalized space, I think some people would filter into it from academia and some people would filter into it who, whatever they're doing right now, I have no idea. Like I kind of think of it as like everyone in academia is like trying to grow a sunflower and they're like, we try to grow sunflowers as like tall as they can. I'm like, what if we also planted a tulip? Like that could also be cool. And they're like, well, but it's not a sunflower. I'm like, yeah, it's a, it's a different thing. But it turns out if you all, if we just have a monoculture, like one sunflower phage or whatever is going to knock out all the sunflowers, but it won't kill a tulip. Or like we might discover some other tulip we couldn't discover the sunflower. That doesn't mean like tear up all your sunflowers that they're bad. It just means we shouldn't only have sunflowers. I like your metaphor. While you, while you came up with that metaphor, I had a metaphor as well. And this is why two writers meet and we're going to just have a, <laughs> a not a monoculture of metaphors here. But for some reason, I was thinking about Full House. Do you remember that show? Yeah, yeah. And it's like yeah. sometimes different actors came in, like Kimmy Gibbler came in from the outside mm -hmm. sometimes. It wasn't in every episode, but she like spiced the shit up a bit. And I'm like mm -hmm. a Kimmy Gibbler a little bit. <laughs> Like, I wouldn't want to live in the house, but I would be the uh -huh. super annoying neighbor who came in and made things really interesting and, like, poked the bear a little bit. There's no room for me in the current science yeah. house like that. Yes. Yeah, because, like, you're not allowed to just, like, show up to a department and be like, hey, I'm here. I'm weird. They'd be like, you needed, you needed ID. Like, we're calling security. Where, where, yeah, really my, my hope for, for a science house would be like, it's a place for the, it to the scene to have like a physical location. So much like, you know, every great scene, artistic scene, like had the bar where they hung out or they had the university where they could hang out. Like a scene can live online and that can be cool, but there is something about being able to be in the same room with someone where like, that's kind of how culture happens. So there's a lot of stuff that we can do online, but I'd like it to be like, you can come over and have snacks with the people who live in science house. And some of those people could be people who like, you know, then go back to their departments and can tell people like, can you believe that there is this science house where they just like do weird stuff all day? And they could be like, how many papers did they publish? And they're like, none. They don't, <laughs> they, they don't publish in a journal. They just put PDFs on the internet. Can you believe it? Just to show people that such a thing is possible. Not even that, that it's a thing that everybody should do, but somebody should do it. I, I really like science house. I like snacks. I think <laughs> I could 
definitely <laughs> contribute because to be honest, I was telling someone about this podcast and what the fuck I was trying to do with it. And I was like, you know, that drink you have at the conference, you know, maybe when you're a grad student, you get like invited to have the drink with the adults or whatever. But there's uh -huh. always the drink you have with somebody somewhere where it's you end up writing shit on a napkin or whatever. You're like, that's a fucking good yeah. idea. That's the kind of culture I want to promote because to yeah. be honest that kind of conjecture is that's where the juice is you know what i'm saying like yeah. the tough refutation of it is 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 also a thing but this is the this is the stuff i think that inspires people to want to do science for me it did i was like i love this atmosphere then the thing that made me want to quit of course was you know not only the tedium of doing the experiments analyzing the data but then the fact that on top of all that shit well only two percent of you are probably going to get a job so that sucks but keep going <laughs> yeah can i rent a room at science house yeah i think the barriers between what the people do there and the rest of the world are much more porous because we're less professionalized it's not like oh you're not you don't do what we do and so you can't talk to us meaningfully in the way that like you're not allowed to just roll into a conference. I mean, you have to pay like $600 to get in in the first place, but like you, it's really hard to access it. And that's part of what it means to be professionalized, right? There's like, there's people guarding the doors to make sure that the only people who get in are the people who are card carrying members of that society, which mm -hmm. just means that like you just never get to talk to a certain kind of person. And I think the biggest strategy of it is like people from the, on the outside become convinced that they can't do the thing that those people do unless they get the card. And, and if nothing else, if I, if I can convince people that like, you actually can do psychology, there's very basic questions. We don't know the answer to you at home doing like not even great research could possibly contribute. And like, you don't need to have doctor in front of your name to do it. You don't need a job at a university to do it. This is what people used to do. I mean, these used, you know, they used to be like men of independent means who would be dallying around with, with whatever. And that's how they discovered stuff. Can we nix the the like men of independent means part and still get like the dalliances? That would be nice. Yeah. yeah. This is the weak link problem that you talk about that you wrote about. Where, did you, where is this idea from? I feel like I've heard this, but not so. Yeah. Well can I be honest with you? It's I, I a little bit downplay this in the post because I know people have feelings about this, but I heard it on a Malcolm Gladwell podcast. Had. And right. yeah. And because I know people lo love to hate on Malcolm Gladwell, like they love to hate on Olive Garden. And it's and it's like, look, soup he's good. Soup salad breadsticks. <laughs> yeah, Stop. it's like you should be able to tell the difference between this and like a fine Italian meal. That doesn't mean it's bad. These are different things. They serve different purposes. <laughs> yeah, so I, I first heard on a podcast about that. And I think he kind of got it from some guys who wrote a book about sports and looking at like soccer and basketball. And I forget which one is which, because I really don't know. But apparently one of those is a strong link problem and one of those is a weak link problem. And when I heard that, I was like, that is a really useful tool of thinking because the way that you treat these problems is totally different. And so if you can recognize which one you're dealing with, it completely changes your response to it. And so I was like, oh, well, it's been so clear to me that science is, is a strong link problem. And the reason why so many of the things that we do make no sense to me is because they are solutions to a weak link problem that I think actually don't go anywhere. Um, mm. But yeah, it came from Malcolm Gladwell in the first place. I, I love it. Um, by the way, I think soccer is a weak link problem, right? Because okay. if, your goal, if your goalie sucks, you've, you know, just quit. But one thing I was thinking about is it's it's about perspective, This the strong link, weak link. And maybe I'll just define it because people... Sure. I don't know if they've read your, if they're not reading your Substack, what the fuck are they doing? But anyways, <laughs> the, the strong link is the, is the idea that you can just ignore the worst 
and and kind of try to improve the best. And and that's what we think we should do with science. Like all the shit ideas are going to fall out anyways. Nobody's going to be able to repeat them. They're just going to fall to the wayside. Whereas like a, a weak link problem is like if you're on an airplane, you definitely want to prevent people from opening the fucking door. So like one yeah. weak link asshole could ruin it for everybody. You said a doctor, I think, in your post. And yeah. I think the way to categorize these is like weak link is weak link problems are based around fear where you're in safety and you're afraid to have something very, very, very bad happen. So I think, and this may be contentious, but like I think of strong AI as a weak link problem, like one bad thing, nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. weak link problem, like one motherfucker with a red button, the Stanislav Petrov situation. You know what I mean? Like that is weak link, but things that are empirical, testable, borderline verifiable, calculable, those could sure. be strong link problems. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because a strong link problem has this property of like, if you get 10 of them and if you do 10 things and you can pick the best one and the nine things don't matter, like you're in a strong link problem. So if you run, if you ask 10 research questions and run 10 studies, and it turns out nine of them don't provide information that like is interesting or useful, that's it. That's all you do. You go, well, and then you don't think about them anymore. And you have the one that actually taught you something interesting and useful. And that one sticks around. Like people remember it, they continue to use it, which is why like there's no benefit in like preventing those nine individual studies from happening, which is I think what a lot of people are focused on that like, oh, we need to stop people from doing bad research because question mark, question mark, question mark. It's like never exactly clear. And I think really the the supposition is like, well, but they might get prestige and like they might get hierarchy points that they don't deserve. I think the key to that is just like (laughs) to not care about it. I read a whole blog post yesterday by Samin Vizier, who's a, a psychologist who's like very outspoken in the open science movement that was called unearned prestige. And it was a talk that she intended to give it at a meta science conference. She got COVID, so she couldn't get it. So she posted online. That was all about like people get unearned prestige because they do bad science, but we don't recognize it as such. And I just had this feeling of like, I don't care. Like, yes, there's all kinds of people across society who have unearned prestige. Like, do we think that the Kardashians deserve to be famous? Like, no, who cares? Like, uh, I mean, I don't, whatever. It doesn't matter. There's all kinds of people who, who have success and attention who don't deserve it. Fine. So long as they're not hurting anybody, like, why don't you just do the thing that you think is good and right? I think people are, are, are inadvertently playing a zero sum game. They think like, well, because the Kardashians have your attention, I can't. So, yeah. and ironically, the people who think the world is not a zero sum game are the ones who are acting like it is. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like they're. Yeah. There's not enough of the attention to go around. There's not enough prestige to go around. Yeah. And then and then the idea being like, so really what I need to stop people from paying attention to other things rather than like do something that is worth people's attention or ask yourself, like, why did you want attention in the first place? Like, if that's what you actually wanted, like you could have doused yourself in kerosene and set yourself on fire like that would have gotten you attention. So like, why, why are we going through this whole song and dance where you publish a paper? That it might just turn out like people didn't read your paper because it wasn't useful to them and it wasn't interesting. Maybe it actually is. And like if only people saw it, they would find it as such. I just actually believe that in the long run, those things do tend to happen because people like to use things that are useful to them. 
They like to read things that surprise them and they also believe are true. And so like if something goes nowhere, it could always be like, ah, there's some mistake of history. Like if only more people had read this, but also I think history is long and like eventually that's going to come back around. Whereas like, yeah, I don't know. People are reading this paper that's bad. I'm really sad about that. I'm like, that's called reading a paper. Most papers are bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I, I think you're right about history being long. Like, I mean, I never heard Kate Bush on the radio. And then now, like, you know, we're here, like, what the fuck? Okay. Yeah. I think you're right, though, about the professionalization kind of contributing to this because there are only so many academic slots. And so then it does become a game of almost zero sum. And I wonder how we could. There are certain things I think that should be a weakling problem, like avoiding totalitarianism. We should definitely exclude those kinds of people from the presidency. Yeah. But how do we get Science House rolling? <laughs> how do you transform science into that strong link problem that it really is? Yeah. I think you try to do the best work that you can. And maybe that that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, I've got some anonymous blog, blogger friends who are trying to cure obesity. If you cure obesity... That's, that's just it. Like if you reverse this trend that's been going on for 60 years, like, you know, people can complain about it, but you you did it. And that's kind of going to be in the bank. And so, yeah, I think it it basically is doing work that is so useful and good that, that people cannot ignore it. And like, that's hard, but that's kind of the whole reason. I mean, that's the whole point. Uh, Other than that, like, yeah, you could try to like, all right, we got to change these institutions or something. And just like, I have seen the, you know, caverns full of the skulls of the people who have tried to change these institutions and like you obviously do a little bit over time like they have changed in both good and bad ways and like if that if you feel like that's your calling like if you want to grind the rest of your life to make these giant organizations turn a little bit to the left or to the right like power to you i think somebody should do that i just don't have any interest in doing it because it seems really painful. <laughs> I'd rather just do the part that I think I'm good at and that I like doing, which is like trying to do work and let things happen as they will. Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to say easy for a Rhodes Scholar to say, but <laughs> you said something uh, where you were like, you know, I got a blank check and you were advocating that we need less validation yeah. or like we're the type of people who search for validation. But I don't know. Maybe we need more validation because didn't that validation then put you where you are right now? It might have, but I, I kind of have the sense that like, if that's what you're looking for, you have a hole that can never be filled. Like I, I think I know a few people and maybe I'm one of them that, you know, you had your validation meter and just like, you actually did really need it to hit a certain level. And then you were fine. And you're like, I feel validated and I don't need any more, but almost everybody else that I know, it's like, no, I need more because I don't feel secure in what I have already. And, and honestly, I don't even think I was one of those people that just like, I got enough. I think it was of like, I had parents who, who loved me. And I just like never questioned from the beginning that like I was good and I didn't need someone to prove it to me. Yeah. I think there is a point you have to hit to be able to like do stupid shit and fail and do all that stuff. You have to feel a certain balance of validation in order to just go, all right, fuck it, let's try some shit. And then you can look inward and go, okay, maybe I, maybe the validation is here. But we all seek this, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, increasing the, the number in your bank account 
And, and it's like, yeah, you, you need it to be enough that you're not going to starve. Although for some people, like that just means you have nothing to lose. So like you can do weird stuff because it's like, well, I'm not going to go broke because I already am broke. And you could do this from the validation side too. Like every, nobody believes in me right now. So why not do exactly the thing that I want to do? Cause it's not like I have anything to lose. Uh, whereas the more you have, the more you have to lose. And so, and so I see people who have been very successful who are like, you would think that this increased the number of options in my life. In fact, it, you know, narrows them to this tiny band of things that I'm allowed to do because I, I have nowhere to go but down. And so, you know, I've uh, gone to good institutions at every stage up until now, and I can't afford to like drop down a rank at the next thing that I do. Like I have to stay at this level. Ooh, that makes me sad. That's a weak link problem. Yeah. I think you have to fulfill your, your validation needs or at least recognize them before you can really do anything substantial. Yeah. You know, as sad as that is, your style is so, I just laugh out loud when I read your, when I read your Substack, And I feel like people with a sense of humor, like you said, your parents loved you, but I don't know, people with a sense of humor, like I'm going to say ours, maybe mine's a little darker than yours, but there is something like intrinsic of big struggle that you have to go through and you have to climb up over to be able to laugh at things that most people are like, is he fucking serious right now? Do you feel like that's psychologically relevant? Hmm. Like you need a certain level of validation to be able to laugh or to like no, see dark things as funny. To like overcome a certain struggle, you have to have hmm. that to see things as funny. Maybe, maybe there's different ways of getting there that like, maybe that's a common route to like developing a sense of humor and becoming a funny person. For me, it just felt like funniness was, was, was like doing interpersonal Sudoku. It was like, it is finding the arrangement of phonemes that like produces this result in another person. When I say that out loud, it makes me sound maybe robotic and scary, but, but like, it actually felt like a fun thing to do with other people. Like we're, we're both trying to, I mean, in most of the people I'm around, we're all trying to do this. Like when you hang out with improvisers, it's like someone says something and everyone's like crunching in their head. Like, what's the bit? What's the bit? And, and like, you can get at that point by, I don't know, struggling your whole life to be taken seriously. Have people pay attention to you or give you validation. You can also get to that point by like encountering that as an interesting thing to do. You just, yeah, you just expose both of us, right? That's fine. That's fine. That's good. <laughs> so, okay. I had a bad childhood. Maybe you didn't. Mine wasn't that bad. But the, the humor aspect, I, I love that you put it as a problem solving thing, because that is like a true scientist thing to do. I mean, I don't think it makes you sound robotic and scary. I think it's it's it makes you actually sound more relatable. So yeah, thank you. I don't know. No, maybe I'm wrong. The fact that you calculate in your head how to make someone laugh is. Um... But I mean, it doesn't actually it doesn't feel like doing math. It, it feels it feels intuitive. Mm -hmm. It feels like, oh, this next thing I could say feels good. Like, I want to do that. And it's the same feeling, not that I play any instrument very well, but like when you are, I mean, literally doing music, musical improv improvisation with someone else, it's like, oh, if I play this here, that'll sound good. It's the exact same feeling to me. Like, oh, if I say this, it'll, it'll feel good because it'll produce like this thing between us mm -hmm. um, is my like pro-social version of it rather than like, what buttons can I press to extract <laughs> like a certain response from this human yeah yeah no i think you smooth you smoothed the output on that one so good job good job on great that. thank you i'm very normal uh-huh totally i can tell i can see that not at all wires sticking out of your ears or anything yeah so. i'm sorry i can't join you on the other side of this metal detector i can't go through it for religious reasons <laughs> 
I don't know how I'm going to finish this. I'm just dying laughing. I was so excited to do this today just because you don't often meet academics who can fucking take a joke. I'm sorry. Like, or make a joke. Let them not, not even like, they can't even take one, let alone make one. So what, what have you found to be your experience in dealing with academics? Like, in the, what's their Sudoku puzzle like? I mean, a big part of their Sudoku puzzle is, is how do I ascend this hierarchy? And like, they wouldn't, I, I think almost none of them think about it that way. But I really saw like, I think when you see it, it's hard to unsee it. When I was at a, the last conference that I went to, I noticed that a lot of times when people say like, oh, that's a cool paper. Like you really have to be steeped in it to pick up what they mean is like, oh, I like respect the game of take, like doing this set of studies in order to get a paper published in that journal. Like that is what they actually mean. What they're saying is like, good move. Like I respect mm. the game you're playing. And like some of it is legitimate appreciation for a good idea. But I think a lot of it is like, a pre, it's like watching someone play a good game of basketball. It's like, oh man, the way you put that ball in that hoop. And it's not because putting the ball in the hoop is intrinsically valuable. It's that like we've constructed this set of rules in which like that's an important thing to do. And like, it's cool that you did it from so far away or you did it without looking or whatever. And so that I think is a problem that they're solving. Like, how do I put together a series of words in such a way that the gatekeeper will raise the gate and allow me through it. And yeah. when you think about it that way, it does feel, I think, very robotic and scary. And that's why I don't want to do that. Because it, you know, at least when we're putting a ball in a hoop, we all know that it's not important to put a ball in a hoop. It's only in the context of basketball that that matters. But we're pretending that like, no, we're, we're really doing science here. We're discovering things when in fact, mainly what we're doing is putting balls in hoops. And if we can't admit that, like that's, that's some creepy cult stuff. I got, I got to get away from that. That's for real though. And the worst part is they don't realize they're putting balls in hoops. They, a lot of them think they're doing the science. They're like, I did a, I did a scientific discovery today. It's like, d d no, you, and then when you, when they do realize it, it's like, they, they kind of are like affronted by you calling it out. They're like, how dare you insult the sanctity of what we're doing in the process of it. And I think it's a, it's a result of having to be so focused on one narrow pursuit that the second you open your eyes and try some different things, you realize like, this is kind of fucked. Uh, when I was in grad school, I got, I had just gotten married. I bought a house. I had a baby. I redid the house. I mean, I did a lot of shit. I volunteered in other places and people were like, you're a crazy girl. I was like, I have interests. And they're like, well, that's not going to work. Were, were people at the time like, but with all these human activities that you do, how will you publish your papers? How will you put the ball in the hoop? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, were you weird to begin with? Were you weirdified during graduate school or did you come at it in a weird way that like? Oh, this shit's natural, baby. I'm all natural. <laughs> I was born weird. Uh, because I, I think people find it really hard to resist. Like when everybody else is putting a ball in the hoop and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go pay my house. People are like, well, but the ball in the who what are you you're crazy and most people go like oh yeah yeah sorry I, i'll please can pass me the ball well the problem is i was in like, like i just like, knock shit off my desk but the problem is i was like <laughs> i was like alley open it you know what i mean like i still got like 10 publications in grad school and yeah. and uh, and what what's the fucking thing called a fellowship or whatever um mm -hmm. i was still the golden child and and i think that really made a lot of people mad but it's like 
this is the mm-hmm. other thing that academics don't pay attention to is like natural inborn gifts in a sense. Uh, they pretend like everybody's like this. Everybody can do this. And it's like, no, some people are better at doing certain things than other people. And I think they don't count like luck, like the luck of your genetics or whatever. And you hear a lot of times mm-hmm. about like, this is the struggle I have with like inclusivity and stuff in academics. It's like they want inclusivity, but yet they want you to be the best. And it's like, which one of those <laughs> mm-hmm. do you want? Because it can't yeah. be both. The person who spends 10,000 hours in the lab and wants to is going to do better than the person who spends 15,000 hours in the lab and doesn't want to. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that is something that I, I, I totally agree with you, that people don't understand and they're just like, you can just optimize for this problem. Like in, so in optimizing, like you can get a, the desired outcome. And it's just like, I don't think so. Just like you can put yourself in the library for 10 hours and be like, I was in the library for 10 hours. But if you just waste all that time because like you're not focused because you don't want to be there and you don't care about what you're studying, then like the fact that you were there for 10 hours like is a red herring. Uh, mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to figure this out that I was like, oh, but other people are working so much on this. And it, I think it just turned out that like, they're no, they're mainly wasting their time. But they they were doing like cargo cult work that they were they were like, well, but I'm doing the action of being in the library. And so like I'm working very hard. And I don't know, I think those people give everybody else anxiety because it's like, well, I'm not I'm not working as hard as, as this other person. Or is it like that other person is making themselves suffer and thinking that like you can turn suffering into outcomes? <laughs> it turns out like a little bit like. Yeah, you can move the needle, but you can't move it around the world. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think this sounds a little elitist, but it's more about like, you know, letting letting the circle peg go in the circle hole kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is a lot of people want to be involved in science. Let's say that. But like I have a friend who writes for the Heterodox blog and he was like, why do we tell kids they can be anything they want to be? You can be a musician. You can be an astrophysicist. It's like, no, you fucking can't. Why are we doing this? Like, yeah, like you can be a struggling musician. You can't be a struggling astrophysicist. Either you make it or you don't. And I think the problem is, is like we want people to want to be astrophysicists, but then there's only so much room for them. There's like, like you said, there's no like mid-tier. There's no B team. There's no junior varsity astrophysicist team. Yeah, where instead of telling people you can be whatever you want to be, be like there is something that you're going to have a comparative advantage at doing. Like you're going to be good at something and it's going to match with like what you like to do and what society finds useful. Unfortunately, for some of you, this is going to be very difficult to figure out what it is because it's not going to be on the list of the top 50 things that most people want to do. And like you could really waste a lot of time like trying to do number 13 on that list if this doesn't happen to be the thing that like you like to do and are good at and society finds useful. And like and, you know, this may not be even in the top 200 of the most desired things that everybody else wants to do. But what you should really do is not care about where it is on the list because like this is the thing that you like to do and are good at. And the point of your life is like to find that niche and like be the best at being in the niche. And like I, I have to do this to myself sometimes of like sometimes I get caught up in like, ah, oh, but I got to think about like a theory that like changes psychology forever, like or else what was the point of it? And I I don't do any good work when I'm in that mode because I'm too worried about doing good work rather than just like, I just have to be exactly the person that I am and be good at being that person because there isn't another one like me 
and whatever niche this is, like, I want to expand to fill it and like fill it well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, so basically you say we just need to cure like mimetic desire and we'll be fine. That'll be all right then. Yeah, that sounds Should good. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Let's, right. do, let's do that. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to put that on my to-do list and maybe uh, <laughs> when I focus on it really hard, I'm just having fun doing it. Maybe it'll happen for me. Yeah. I don't know if you've thought about going to the library for 10 hours, but maybe that would help. You probably, by the end of the day, I mean, it's 10 hours. It's a long time. I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there. I love it. I'm happy to be at the library. This, why does this sound robotic again, though? It does. It sounds like, well, you just need to computate your best Mm -hmm. fucking ability along with, you know, your Igakai or whatever, and you'll be there. And, um, this does sound quite robotic, but what about AI? What about AI? Once we have enough artificially intelligent fuckers to do what the shit we don't want to do the you know the dirty job kind of shit what about then like maybe you think then people will be able to like release that mimetic desire and they'll just magically want to do what they want to do not what society wants no okay i don't know i kind of doubt it because it's like okay if you, if you chop off the bottom of the hierarchy i don't think people are suddenly like like, I don't care about the hierarchy anymore. Now it's like, I need to claw even harder to make sure that I don't get chopped off the bottom of the hierarchy. Cool. Yeah, I don't know. Cool. A friend of mine once told me, he was like, what I would really like to do is campsite maintenance. Like, I'd love to be the guy who, like, digs the ditches at the campground and, like, hangs the hammocks and mends the fences. And but he's a computer programmer. And, and I just want to be, and I just feel like I couldn't tell him. I'm like, you can be that. You can do that job. And like, I understand like he has a family and, and, you know, probably doesn't pay the amount that he would like to make, but you can, you can do that. Like that job does exist. And like the fact that, okay, so there are practical reasons why you might not, might not do it, but that job shouldn't be undesirable to you because it is what you want to do. The fact that other people don't want to do that should not affect the fact that like you like to do it or should not like constrain your possibilities for doing it. But if he had so the I money to do the, it, wouldn't he do it? Isn't it more about the money then yeah. rather than genetic desire? I I bet that it is. And now, I mean, now I'm trying to do psychology at a distance on, on this guy. But like, yeah, if you could make it so that everyone is free from fear of want, then I bet people do a lot more interesting stuff or they just fear wanting more. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. All right. So that's not, that's not, so it's not solvable basically. Well, like, well, your guess is your guess is as good as mine. Well, okay. I mean, the thing is, is that, as long as there are differences, there's going to be a problem. There's going to be a struggle, right? And like this, I had, I was looking on, when I first moved here, I was on Bumble and I'll never forget this. Like I was like swiping for these, it's like platonic Bumble for girls, for friends or whatever. Uh-huh. And this, and it was like, if you could solve one problem, what would you solve? And this girl's like, I'd solve racism. And I was just like, <laughs> I, it's just, how do you tell people, which I did, by the way, I told her, um, if you solved racism, there would be no different races. And people really don't get this, that like differences are like how we exist. If there was no difference between anything, we'd all be a bunch of just like ones and zeros, like nothingness. Like how do you Mm -hmm. explain this to people that your suffering, your differences is kind of like what makes life possible? Well, it, it does sound like a bit of a hard sell. Would you say it like that? <laughs> this is why I'm not popular. Um, this is why I'm cringe. Uh, yes, a small child in the city of Omalas, you must understand that it is important for you to be in this room experiencing great suffering. But 
if you weren't in the room, others of us would suffer. So you see how it's, it's a very difficult situation. Um, putting us all in a bad situation, child. <laughs> oh, well, are we going to yeah, get canceled? I mean, for this? Least, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think the child might reasonably ask, can we take turns in the room? Uh, mm. And I think we should have an answer for that because the answer might be yes, we can't, we can't actually, or like, could we have 10 rooms instead of one? Can we, you know, spread this suffering around a little bit? Like, let's say we can't eliminate it. Why should I have to bear all of it? I think that's a fair question that deserves an answer. But um, now we're getting metaphysical because like, who says that someone's suffering is worse than another's? I, I, I wouldn't. No, I, I, it all seems bad to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think we we try to we try to put a hierarchy to these metaphysical things. Po let's just take one discrete example of like poverty and say, you know, someone who is impoverished is much more likely to experience suffering. But it's like not actually true. Sometimes in some places, having less, you're you might even be happier. I mean, we've got so many different variables that it's like. How do we even tell the child, like, sure, we'll take turns in your room. It's like, how, what is the room? <laughs> I mean, he, I think, would reasonably ask, he'd be like, okay, look, I mean, just looking at U.S. data that, like, over the past generation or so, people's average level of self-reported happiness hasn't changed that much. Th this may not be true in the past few years, but, like, let's write the pan pandemic off, whatever. But in that time, we saved all these lives. We, you know, we cured polio. We put bigger TVs in people's houses. So was doing that, all of that, like, pointless because it didn't change people's responses on this scale? I might tell the kid, I don't know why I'm talking to the kid now, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to convince this kid to take on a lot of suffering so I can have a nice life. Look, kid, just be quiet. <laughs> I'm like, look, that number isn't useful in the way that you're trying to use it that, that like i just think it is actually better for people to not have polio even if we can't detect it on like a life satisfaction measure over time and like why is that the case like i think i, I just think we're now at an axiomatic level like it's better to not like have bones that crumble or whatever happens to you in polio than not and like we should trust our intuitions about that rather than trust that like well, but when people answer this question, it's like, well, when people answer the question, they, they have a particular comparison in mind. If you could give someone polio and then ask them the question and then take it away and ask them the question again, I trust you would find a difference. People prefer not to have it. And the fact that like they're not thinking about how they don't have polio anymore when you ask them the question, like doesn't mean that we're not in a better world. It means that like that comparison doesn't matter. Like this is, I think, in part how the hedonic treadmill works. Like you can make people's lives better, even if they don't report their life being better. But like, their life is better in an important way. I think we should prefer the world in which like people have less material need or, or less material want, I guess, even if it's hard to detect like how that makes them better off. Because if we could actually put them in those two different worlds, they would tell us that there's a difference. I don't know. I'm also not talking about ass. We're getting deep now. We're getting deep because um, what we're talking about is like the comparison of like immaterial needs. Like, do you want freedom or do you want a lack of wanting because we could probably solve one of those <laughs> uh, yeah i don't think both eventually we'll be able to hook you up and just fully satiate all of your needs but you are now chained to the machine what do you think the kid would say <laughs>
please, can I just have a normal kid's life? Like, why me? Why are you making me read Adam's sub stack? <laughs> Can't I have a youth before I get corrupted? Yeah. Uh, but then it's a relevant question because think about it. Like what I might've said when I was 20 might be different than what I'd say now, might be different than what I'm going to say when I'm 40, when I'm 50, you know, it, it's, it's a dynamic thing. So I think one thing that we, one principle we could make here of our, of our ideology about meeting immaterial needs is that it should be dynamic, right? Like it should, you should at least be able to change your circumstances. That's one thing I think that I'm gathering from our conversation about the child and whatnot we both think that you should be able to toggle a switch and move in a different direction. Uh, you should have the freedom to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that, that sounds good to me. Is this a trap? <laughs> no, I don't. I'm it, happy. I'm too... It turns out that but the toggle also creates Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I want to go to a different science house. You know what I mean? Like, or I think choice. Yes. So, so, but then I guess it is a trap, right? Because then you are saying that you value freedom over satisfaction. Um, I mean, like you can value things without having to value them beyond anything else, right? Like you could say like, I think it's good for people to be able to change their state. And then someone is like, well, but what if they want to change the state and like get a bazooka and shoot at other people? I'd be like, that I don't think they should be able to do. Like there are cases in which like, your ability to change your state butts up against other people's ability to change theirs. But I, it is still something that I want. I just want it in a no trap way. Can we, can we do like a no monkey paws kind of situation that like, I just want the real monkey paw that grants wishes, not the bad version of the wishes, just, just no monkey paws, all right? This is why people don't laugh in science and serious conversations, serious podcasts, because we're just we're just guessing about it. And we're just kind of handling it with, you know, kind of like, I don't know, just a fun way. But it's like we're literally talking about if you and I were like the emperors of the earth right now, what would we do? I mean, this is part of why, like when I say all this stuff on my Substack, like I I'm saying it because it should be said, like someone should say this rather than like what I'm really saying. When I say like, hey, peer review doesn't seem to work like we think that it works. I, a lot of people assume that what I'm saying is we should get rid of peer review. If I were made emperor of science, I would like stop it. But in reality, like I don't want to be made emperor of science. Like if I was, I would leave the first day because I don't have sufficient conviction to be like, I clearly know what's the better thing to do, which is why I like the thing that I have the most conviction on is the, like an ecosystem is probably better than a monoculture. And so like somebody should be doing this. That doesn't mean everybody should be doing it or like it should be illegal to do other things. It's just like nobody's doing this thing in this way. And so we're missing something. Mm. And so, to, yeah. So like if I were, yeah, emperor of the wor world, like do I max freedom or do I, you know, max security? I think I max me not being emperor anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a paradox of freedom. Like if you're, you know, if the people give up control in a democracy and they say, no, thank you, we'll bow down to you. Then you as the leader have to say, oh shit. Okay, so I can either take that and start making the rules or I cannot take that. And then I'm making the rules by giving it back to you anyways. I just vetoed your... Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a paradox that, I, to, to my knowledge, no one has solved. But I think we're we're saying similar things, which is like anti-authoritarian. I think that's like a strong yeah. theme here, which is important. 
Yeah. It's insane. No, because uh, no, people are not saying that now. They're not saying like, I am anti-authoritarian. And if they are, it's like they have their own version of authoritarianism. Th that like people are generally like, I don't want authoritarianism unless it's authoritarianism that has all my values. Right. Like that actually sounds good. Like that is why I think the like the values that I have should be mandatory to have because they're, they're good values. And th this I find like very creepy that like I really do believe in my values, but I, I have a little bit of doubt. And so that this is why I don't want them to be enforced at gunpoint. And the, like the fact that someone else thinks something different from me suggests like I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. And I just would rather that like neither of our values are enforced at gunpoint. And like we try to find some other way of figuring out what to do with the fact that we value different things. And like, I don't want to be emperor, but I, I definitely don't want them to be emperor either. I just want no emperors. Can we do no, yeah. no monkey paws, no emperors? Yeah. <laughs> we could just like use a, a wooden gun, like under a, under, under like a cover or something under our jacket and be like, all right, now, you know, like, because yeah, <laughs> I think that's what is currently happening in a sense. Yeah. I, I mean, I think people have this assumption, which is like when people like read that peer review thing that I wrote and and assume that what I want is like some kind of authoritarian solution. I'm like, the authoritarianism is in your head. Like the fact that you would read this and assume that what I want is to implement some kind of mandatory policy, like preventing this thing that I think isn't very good, suggests that like that's the way that you see the world. Like that's how you think that we solve problems is we force people to do things. Mm -hmm. I think that is the mistake. But like you got to be really certain that the thing is good to like force people to do it or to not do its opposite. That like, I don't think it's good to gun people down in the streets. I feel pretty safe with like preventing people from doing that. And like, there's a list of things like that, but that list is not infinitely long. No, uh, it, yeah, it could be. And I think for some people it is because, but again, this goes back to the strong, weak, strong link, weak link thing about how do you live your life? Do you live your life in fear? And I think a lot of people live their life in fear and they want to restrict what what's already in existence to prevent anything bad from happening so they're going to see everything yeah. as a weak link problem yeah yeah if you are always acting out of fear and like a need for safety yes that everything looks like a weak link problem totally mm -hmm. so you want to talk a little bit about what you think grant funding should be like for science house <laughs> yeah so this is again like I think some money should be dispensed this way. I don't think 100% should, but I think what we try to do when we have people like apply for pots of money and then like, you know, they fill out this long form and they do, you know, whatever, and they, when we interview them, what we're basically doing is trying to replace trust. But like the people that you already know in your life, you know, which ones would benefit from that and which ones wouldn't. Like, you know, the people who like, if you gave them a million bucks, they do something really good and beneficial to everybody with it. And the ones who would not do that. And so what we hope to do when we like get their CV and their personal statement and interview them is to like in very quick form, replicate that. And I think that is actually a big mistake that the idea that you could use a set of procedures to replicate the kind of like trust and information you would have with somebody you already know for a long list of re re reasons, right? That like you create this Goodhart's law problem that like you use these measures as targets. And so the measures are not good anymore. The people know what you want them to say. They present, you know, misrepresent themselves. They lie. And you're just asking them basically to do that. And so why not instead take advantage of the trust that already exists rather than like try to create a fake version of trust. And the idea here would be like you endow someone in a social network with the ability to like give out a grant to someone that they're connected to. 
that like, if you gave it to me, I have a list of like five people right now that I think like, if you give them a million bucks, you would do a lot of good for the world. And you, they give out however many grants we like have the money to do. And then the agency, like their, their like magical grant making power passes to someone on the edge of their social network and they do the same thing. And I think like the kind of things that you could empower if you do this are just way weirder, more interesting. And I think overlooked by every other way that we have of giving out grants. So, cause again, here, like we have a monoculture of the way that we give money to people that like, it always looks pretty much the same, which suggests that like we are over serving a certain kind of person who's good at acquiring money in that way. Like what about the people who would never succeed in that kind of competition, but like would actually do something really helpful for the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that is the very silly sounding idea that I called the trust windfall. There's uh, the, more and more things are happening like this. Okay, so here's my issue with that. And maybe this is a good thing. But what I think about now in terms of like where academics get their grant, it's like a watering hole. They know they can go there. And mm -hmm. so then it's weird because like a watering hole, the same watering hole that creates biodiversity also can choke out a population. So it's like mm -hmm. our watering holes are attracting a career path, like a migratory pattern of people who are interested in this kind of thing. But then it's like the lions kill everybody and drink up all the water. So that's the current system. But what you're proposing, it has its own flaws. But again, I think what, what matters about what you're proposing is that it's different, is that mm -hmm. it's differentiated from what currently exists. And I think there is there's, there are things that are starting to happen like this trickle out grants that you're seeing here and there like there's like the tyler cohen thing there's you know what's his name the psychiatrist slate star codex has yep. like his little grant community so i'm seeing these like little granting communities pop up and what do you think about like size variable as well or big small yeah i imagine it is like a million bucks but but the thing is like this could be contextual that like i know the people in my life who like would benefit from a million dollars and the kind of people who are like, actually for 200K, you could unlock their ability to do this thing that I already know they want to do. And like, they don't claim to want to do it because they know that I can give them money. Like they just actually want to do it and they can't do it right now because they don't have enough money. It has its flaws, right? Which is like, well, it could be prone to abuse or like, how do we make sure that it spreads equitably? You don't. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think like, like what people really want is, is like, well, we have our current system and we will only move into a system that has no flaws. Um, right. And it's like, actually, solutions don't work like that. Like, you should have pushed your glasses up before you said that. You should have said, actually. <laughs> um, excuse me. Uh, uh, every solution is like, make some kind of trade off. And the only way that we hit some kind of overall optimality is by having like many things with different trade offs. And so, like, yeah, this has the, the disadvantage of like, well, but if I'm a person who nobody knows, who has a really great idea, how can I ever get one of these? It's like, that's if this isn't built for that, then you want something you can apply to. That's why we shouldn't give out all of our money one way or the other. Do you think it'll all like funnel down though? Like, let's say we just let a thousand flowers bloom. I mean, I think this is cyclical nature to almost everything, right? So like we let a thousand granting flowers bloom and then it's going to become like, the sunflower monoculture again is that just the nature of the way shit's gonna go it could be it, like it really depends on the ability of the person at the beginning to like spread the seeds widely that's the hardest link to cross because like if you are the person sitting with the hundred million dollars ready to give them out 
you have to find some way of getting it far from your edge of the social network. But again, I think like if you're going to start with a trusted link, like you know the kind of person who would know people who are very far away from you and who you can trust to like actually do this. Like there are people in my life who I would not trust to do this. And that's why I wouldn't give them a million dollars. There are people who like would I know would take this really seriously and do a good job. Like I don't have to interview them to know that. Like they don't have to fill out a personal statement to know that. And if everybody did, you know, fill out an application to do that, it'd be really hard to tell the difference between the people who can actually be trusted and the people who can't. Yeah. yeah. Applications might actually be bad, I think, in a sense for that. I mean, what you could say is like, hey, I expect certain things after the money. But even, I, I don't know, are you just like, I mean, would you think just like, just give it to him, no strings attached, just, hey, go be yeah. your MacArthur self, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like everybody seems to love these MacArthur Genius Grants. So like, why reward success that already exists? Right. Like, Lin-Manuel Miranda does not need a million dollars. Like, he wrote a famous musical and now has a bunch of money. Good for him. Like, why, why like waste your money doing that? You need to find the person who would write the amazing musical if they had the money. Like, that's a way harder problem. But we can't just wait for people to already distinguish themselves and then raise more money on them. Just trying to solve that problem. And yeah, if, if I could do it, I, it would be like, you get a check and act like, and that is it. You do whatever you, you want to do after it. Anything that I could do, like, oh, but please, can you make sure, like, that is the point of giving it to a person who's trusted. I trust that they're going to do what's right. I might explain to them, like, this is what this is for. Like, this is the, the thing that we're going for here. I hope that you will, like, further that mission. But again, I wouldn't give it to someone who I'm like, oh, no, I'm worried that they're just going to, like, use it to buy a big Nazi bomb. The way it would be if people were applying for it. Like, I really do need to make sure, like, I don't know this person. They could be buying Nazi bombs. Like, I have to make sure I don't give them a million dollars. Hmm. Okay. I like it. I like it because also I think the other thing about this is that it's sporadic. Whereas if it was like, okay, just if you know somebody, you're going to get this. I think this is better because it's like, surprise, there's your million bucks. Yeah. And then that's it. And you can never like, you can't repeat it. And that is exactly what creates the watering hole and creates like the path dependent. Like people go to the watering hole because they know the watering hole exists. And then you become, you become a water hole goer. They're like, well, my job is I go to the water watering hole and like I get money from that. And like you create a career that is built around the fact that this money exists and and like trying to hack the code to get to get the money out of the system. Whereas this like you can't know what's coming. And once it's here, it's already gone. So it has that advantage. And again, there's like there's advantage of knowing that there's a watering hole there. That's like, OK, I know that I can do this 25 year long project because I know that, it, you know, the grant funding is going to be there in the future, whatever. That's why we don't do 100% one way or 100% in another. Yeah. It's like instead of teaching animals to go to a water hole, it's teaching them to suss out water. And that would evolutionarily preserve a species. It's like, uh, you know, teach teach the kid how to fish or some shit like that, right? Yeah. So, yes. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's like there be being great. a real Santa. <laughs> uh, that like. For real good kids. <laughs> yeah. It's like, look, it's not a guaranteed system. If you are this kind of person, you increase the chances that one day someone will just magically change your life. Um, but you can't fake it because it's going to be someone who knows you well. And if you were to fake it, like you'd really have to spend your life doing it. And at that point, are you really faking it or are you just a good person? Damn. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. That, I think that's a great place to end. This was so much fun. I, I mean, I take it back what I said earlier about you being the guy from the movie. Now I see you much more that I've talked to you as like the cool professor guy who runs the science house. I, I see you in that role now. 
So thank you. He's the one who dies first in the zombie apocalypse. That's for but, sure. I mean, but look, if there's a zombie apocalypse, I don't, I don't really want to be sticking around. As long as he gives out the grant money first, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, I'm thanks gonna... for having me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening. The big nerve question from this episode is from our discussion around new granting mechanisms. What could be an innovative way to grant money to people who will do cool things? Submit your idea to my tournament on Big Nerve where you can win cash, big ups from me, and get your ideas out in the world where they belong. You can find these questions and more at theorygang.io forward slash newsletter.